Jailbird. Dear readers, at this point, I should tell you about my fateful day of 20th July 1989, the day after Martyr's Day. Around 6 a.m., I received a telephone call that armed guards had now surrounded the residential compound of Dosu at number 54 University Avenue. When I reached there, I was able to get inside. Soon, the four party elders of the National League for Democracy, NLD, and all former soldiers, Wu Jin-woo, Wu Jima, Wu Aung-shui, and Wu Chi-kang arrived. At some point after 7 a.m., the guards no longer permitted entry or exit. They collected the name and national identification number of everyone inside the compound. Around 11 a.m., I was informed that there was someone at the gate to deliver a message. An army captain handed me a letter without an envelope addressed to Dawn San Suu Kyi. It was to simply inform her that because of the situation at hand, the State Law and Order Restoration Council law, was placing her under house arrest for one year under Article 10b of the State Protection Law. The letter was signed by the then Minister of Home Affairs, Major General Pomian. I handed it to the addressee, who then showed it to the four NLD elders present at the time. No one except Dosu commented. It says one year. So one year it is. Around 3 or 4 p.m., some guards came in and asked the NLD elders to leave the residence. I remained in the compound with the youth members of our party. Around 6 p.m., it was starting to get dark. At nightfall, there came a searchlight beaming into the compound from a pool outside. A few moments later, the guards made us open the gate. Two trucks entered in reverse gear. We were then loaded onto the trucks. Mamotu and Mamunta stuck inside the NLD headquarters nearby at number 44 of University Avenue, had already been picked up. Matengi, Dosu's personal assistant, and was put in the same truck with us. Only Dosu and her two sons and another person were left behind. As expected, we were driven in the direction of Insane Prison, about 10 miles from Central Rangoon. There were altogether 41 of us. For no apparent reason, I thought of the 41st, a Russian film I had seen in my younger days. When we reached Insane Prison, everyone except myself, Maumutu and Mawanta, was unloaded from the trucks and taken inside. The three of us were there driving driven to the military intelligence MI complex about nine miles from downtown Rangoon. By the time we got there, it was around 11 p.m. I was then separated from my two colleagues. I was to be detained without charge for 28 days at this intelligence facility. As expected, I was interrogated. Seated at a table in a room, a man in civilian clothes asked me about myself, my siblings, my children, my aunts, uncles, what each of us did for a living, where we worked, where we lived, and so on and so forth. I was then asked about the details of myself, since birth to present, where I had gone to school, where I had worked, etc., etc. Lastly, a different man questioned me about my political activities. This time, I could not see my interrogator as my entire head was hooded with a cloth bag. I was also handcuffed behind my bag. Things turned sour as his questions became more about Dosu. He started to sound more commanding and demanding. As I kept answering no or I don't know, he became more and more irritated. 
He was convinced that I must know more, as I had been working with her for a long time. Indeed, since October 1988, I had been working with Dosu, accompanying her on her campaign trail, and arranging her appointments with both domestic and overseas interlocutors. But I was not privy to the inside scoop, as I did not get to sit in on every single meeting of hers. My interrogator also wanted to know whether she was in contact with the Central Intelligence Agency (CIA) of the United States and the Special Branch of the United Kingdom. Calmly and politely, I kept denying that I knew anything. He got angrier and ruder and started pounding the table with his fist. The grilling went on until about 3 a.m. the next morning. Since my lunch at Dosu's residence the previous day, I had not had anything to eat or drink. I was now more thirsty than hungry, and surprisingly, I was not offered any water or any other drink. Constrained by the handcuffs and blinded by the hood, I was feeling quite disoriented. At one point, my interrogator gathered his notepad and left the room. I thought he had given up. Still seated, I figured I should get some sleep. Resting my head on the table, I could not fall asleep. <coughs> About half an hour later, I heard the interrogator coming back, jingling some keys. As I put my head up, he grabbed my arm and told me to get up and walk. He guided me out of the room. After a five-minute walk, it sounded like we were inside another room. He removed my handcuffs. He then told me not to turn around and removed my hood. I still kept my eyes closed. After I heard him leave the room and lock the door behind me, I slowly opened my eyes and studied my surrounding. It was an empty room, about ten feet by ten feet, with a very low ceiling. I took off my footwear and used it as a pillow. Lying flat on the concrete floor, I closed my eyes. I did not know how long I had been asleep. I woke up when I heard the door being unlocked. Someone brought me a piece of deep-fried breadstick and a cup of tea. Famished, I gulped down my breakfast in no time. I was then hooded and taken to a room. I was left there with the same interrogator from the night before. He did not tell me his name. After he removed my hood, I figured he was a surgeon. He made me read and sign his written records of what I had said earlier during the interrogation. Then I was taken back to the room I had slept in. I slowly walked up and down inside that small room. It took me only seven steps from wall to wall. While walking, I was chanting every gatha and sutra I knew by heart. I also tried to get some exercise for my head, back, and limbs. After a brief rest, I sent out mita to all sentient beings and started meditating. Lunch and dinner were brought to me. I slept in the same room. Using my footwear as a pillow, I repeated the same routine the next day and night. Then, on twenty-second July nineteen eighty-nine, as I had not been taken out for further questioning, I thought that the intelligence hierarchy still might have been reading my signed statements. I wondered if the papers had gone up all the way to the top, Brigadier General Kinyo, the then MI Chief and Slog Secretary Number One. He and I were acquainted back in my military days. At some point, I was take, again taken for questioning. A different interrogator, who was already in the room when I arrived, said rudely, "You think you are such a smartass that you could fool us? Tell us what's the deal with you and Somiatu." His demand puzzled me for a moment. I had never even spoken to the person in question. 
I had often seen Somiatu at the gate of Dosu's compound. I would greet him with a smile or a nod, but I could not say that he and I were friends. The last thing I had heard was that the doctors in a political party were treating him for some kind of ill health. I truthfully explained the extent of my relationship with Somiatu. But the Grand Inquisitor has not satisfied. Was not satisfied. He simply would not accept my answers. It occurred to me that Sumyatu might have been present when everyone inside Dosu's compound was rounded up and taken away a couple of days ago on 20th July 1989. The interrogator kept repeating the same question and I kept repeating the same answer. Frustrated and irritated, he changed the subject. Tell us everything you know about Aung San Suu Kyi and her foreign connections. If not, you regret it in big time. You'll find yourself in big trouble. I denied any knowledge of Dosu's overseas contacts. He slammed the table with his open palm and said, Well, you'll see. Stand up. Get up this instant. As I stood up, he removed my chair and dragged me away from the table. After two or three steps, he ordered me to kneel on the concrete floor. I knew I was about to be tortured without him even touching me with his fingertip. After three or four minutes, my knees started warming, then heating, and burning, and then hurting. I tried as long as I could to endure the pain. When it became unbearable, I threw my body down on the floor. My torturer demanded that I get up. As my hands were still cuffed behind my back, I could not get my body to rise. He pulled my head up by my hair, still hooded with the bag. I had to kneel down. Again. Four or five minutes later, I threw myself down. He again pulled me up by my hair. Again and again, he and I repeated our respective motion. I lost track of the frequency of this torturous cycle. I realized that this ordeal had started around 7 p.m. and was still going on even after 12 midnight. I did not lose track of time as I could hear a communal clock striking loudly every hour. My entire body was now soaked in sweat. I was sweating through not only my shirt but also my jacket. I had not been allowed to wash or shower since I arrived here on the fateful day of 20th July 1989. Naturally, my body smelled foul. After a while, I was on the verge of breaking down. Several times I asked myself whether I should make up and divulge Dosu's overseas contacts. I just wanted this torture to stop. Then again, I figured my fabricated story about her contacts with foreign intelligence agencies would suddenly appear in the state-run media, indicating my name as the source. That would be the end of me. The end of my reputation, essentially the end of my life. Thankfully, my moral compass pointed me in the right direction. I managed to endure the pain inflicted on me. Around 2 a.m., I fainted and collapsed. I could not tell how long I had been unconscious. My interrogator must have left the room after I passed out. I regained consciousness when he came back inside. I did not open my eyes. He neither pulled me up nor told me to kneel again. In the same position on the floor, I fell asleep. I woke up around 5 a.m. I could not get my body up. A while later, I heard the door open. I was pulled up and seated back on a chair. I felt something being wrapped around my arm realized that my blood pressure was being checked. I also felt something being pressed here and there on my torso. I could tell it was the sister's skull checking my heart, lungs and internal organs. 
A few moments later, I was left alone in the room. Around 6 a.m., someone brought a cup of tea and a piece of deep-fried breadstick. He removed my handcuffs. He lifted my hood only up to my nose to allow me to eat. After my breakfast, he took me back to the detention room. I don't recall it if it was the fifth or the sixth day of my detention when I was finally allowed to take a shower. Of course, I did not have a change of clothes. In the shower, I tried to wash the very same outfit I had been wearing. Back in the detention room, I had to wait until my clothes were dried to put them back on. The following days, I was often taken out for further questioning. I was asked about some particular Ennadi Party elders and members or activists. My answers never really satisfied the interrogators. After some days in my into my detention, probably around the end of July 1989, my captors started allowing me to read the news. From the state-run papers, I I learned about various martial law orders and decrees issued by the ruling slog. In early August, I read about a special press conference held by the MI head Brigadier General Kinyon. The main topic covered was the underground network activities of the Communist Party of Burma (CPB) to take over the country. The MI agents had uncovered and arrested some key CPB cells. After being held without charge or trial for 27 days inside the intelligence facility, I was taken to Insane Prison on the 28th day. When I boarded the microbus, my hood was removed. I saw a few other people. Apparently, I was not the only one interrogated and held at that MI compound. Inside the microbus, seated near me were Gomo and Ang Ang. I wanted to greet them, but the guard riding with us not would not allow us to talk. When I when we reached the prison gate, I tried to talk to the two brothers. The prison guard receiving us forbade us from talking. I thought to myself, "Well, that's life."